We're going to be studying this uh, psalm and I'm going to study it under four headings. The four headings are, first of all, the psalmist's reason. Psalmist's reason for writing the psalm. The Christian's resources. Thirdly, the Christian's resolve. And fourthly, the Christian's reward. The good news is that uh, I'm only going to try to cover the first two of those headings today. Uh, the bad news is you'll all have to come back next week to hear the rest. But um, uh, I exaggerate somewhat because I am trying to record these messages and they will go on to my podcast and so they will be available but we do want you here in in person if you can come uh, because otherwise we we don't have the fellowship that otherwise we might the psalmist reason why does he write this psalm well the answer i think is really obvious he writes the psalm to reason himself out of a very bad spiritual place. Uh, you see the opening words are this, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. O oh, deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. As was probably, we don't know for sure, it's probably written by King David while he was in exile from his throne. There had been a palace coup and his son Absalom had driven him out and taken the throne to himself, supported by the majority of Israelites. And hence we get this <coughs> reference uh, to an unjust nation and a deceitful and unjust man. And so here is David, almost certainly, that is when it was, when it was written, he is in exile and he is in a bad place. Uh, he says in verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why do you cast me off? God has forgotten me. God has given up on me. God has let me down. God has failed me. And he had these bitter thoughts. And he was in a bad spiritual place. And yet he knows how he can get out of that. Because he has a way. And his way of doing so is to go back in memory to a pilgrimage that he had made probably several times, possibly many <coughs> times, a pilgrimage in which the Jews of his day would leave their homes perhaps three times a year for the three major feasts of the Jewish calendar and they would make their way to Jerusalem and when they got to Jerusalem 
they would go up the hill, Mount Zion, it's not mentioned by name here, it's called God's Holy Hill, and there they would find something that was their true destination. Their destination was not a particular hill. <clears throat> this was in the days when the tabernacle, the old Jewish tabernacle that had accompanied the Jewish nation after they came out of Egypt had been constructed under God's instruction by Moses and that portable temple, if you like, had accompanied the Jewish people through the 40 years wandering in the wilderness, across the river into the promised land of Canaan, through the conflict and warfare in Canaan, and into the settled situation <coughs> when that conquest was complete. It was a portable temple. And that was what they would find in, in David's day, that is what they would find at the top of Mount Zion. Later, when David's son, Solomon, became king, he built a majestic, magnificent temple. But it wasn't on Mount Zion, it was on Mount Moriah, a neighbouring hill. Mount Zion was the highest of the seven hills on which Jerusalem was built. The temple was built on Mount Moriah and then the temple would become the object of the pilgrimage. But as he writes, he is thinking of the tabernacle. Now it's very important for us to realise that this description, this psalm, is presenting to us not a physical pilgrimage, uh, David couldn't go on physical pilgrimage, he was an exile. But he is presenting it to us as a spiritual pilgrimage. And you'll say, well, how do I know that? Uh, well, it's quite obvious, isn't it? David knew how to get to the top of Mount Zion physically. Done it dozens of times, perhaps. It was he who had installed on the top of Mount Zion uh, what was left of the old tabernacle. So he didn't need God's light and truth to get him there. He knew the way already. Could get there with his eyes closed, perhaps. Or even if he couldn't, all he had to do was follow the crowd because there were crowds of people going up on pilgrimage, especially during these feast times. But this pilgrimage requires him to be led by God's truth and God's light. And that is no physical pilgrimage. And that is why this psalm is so valuable for us today. Because although we cannot and would not want to go on pilgrimage to, to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, still there, mm. although the tabernacle isn't there anymore, uh, but we can, as, as we sit here uh, in modern times, we can follow the psalmist's steps in this spiritual pilgrimage. 
And do we need to? Well, of course we need to. I don't believe there is one of us who has not suffered some of the disappointment, the despair, the being cast down, as he puts it in the psalm. And incidentally, I'm using the New King James Version, so uh, if you've got the New English, um, if you, uh, the, the ESV, English Standard Version, you might find some small differences, but nothing important. We've all been where he is in the psalm when he begins. We've all been at that point where we have said, well, why is God dealing with me in this way? Why are these things happening to me? Why am I in, am I in this trouble? Why am I cast down? Why am I discouraged or depressed or disillusioned? or whatever it might be. Why do I suffer in the way that I suffer? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Another psalm actually asks that question. Well, we've all been there, I believe, every one of us. And if we haven't been there, we will be there at some stage in our Christian life. And this psalm shows us the way out of that condition. We need this psalm because you see what begins as disillusionment, discouragement uh, and uh, defeat if you like, despair possibly in verses 1 and 2 finishes up as delight at the end of the psalm. I will go unto the authors of God unto God my exceeding joy. What a transformation. And whenever we find ourselves in trouble, in difficulty, whenever we find ourselves depressed or worried or fearful, or wondering if God has somehow forgotten us, we need to make this pilgrimage. And we need to start where we are in our trouble, and we need to finish up where the psalmist finishes up, in the experience that God is for him in the midst of his trouble an exceeding joy, the source of a joy that overcomes all the troubles, that rises above them and that brings peace and joy in believing. Well then, <clears throat> we need to know something about the physical pilgrimage before we can apply it in the way that the psalmist does to the spiritual pilgrimage. So let me very briefly go over things that you may already know but which are worth repeating. <clears throat> the tabernacle was that portable temple that the Jewish people carried with them as I've already mentioned and the tabernacle consisted of, first of all, an outer court. And within that open-air court, there were two pieces of furniture, if I can call them that. The first one you came to, as you entered the, the area, was the altar of burnt offering. And that's where the priests would kill the animal sacrifices that were brought in by the people 
<coughs> that is where they would either burn the whole of that animal uh, in a burnt offering on that altar or more generally they would simply take the fat of the animal and burn it on the altar which was always burning when the tabernacle was in use of course um, <coughs> I don't know whether you've ever gone, uh, gone to church uh, on a Sunday morning as we used to do uh, and uh, left uh, uh, left a lamb joint in the oven cooking and you came back home opened the front door the house was filled with a, a beautiful smell beautiful odour aroma perhaps I ought to say now that, that's why the fat was offered on the altar it was an aroma indicative of the uh, of the praise and worship of God's people to God and of course that great brass altar where the animals were sacrificed is a picture and only a picture of what the Lord Jesus Christ would do when he died upon the cross uh, we, we read in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 uh, where the writer to the Hebrews is in fact um, bringing to bear upon this issue um, a realization that everything we read in the Old Testament is in fact pointing to Christ. I'm sure you remember the passage in Luke chapter 24 when, when the risen Christ draws near to two disciples who had, uh, had been in Jerusalem and they had witnessed the death of, his, uh, of their leader and they were going back home to, to their, their village some miles away a place called Emmaus and they were going very sad, very despondent, very depressed. And the risen Christ comes alongside them, but he can't be recognized by them. They don't know who this stranger is. And he says, well, what's, what's your problem? Why are you so sad? Uh, and they said, are you a stranger in Jerusalem? You don't know what's been going on? And uh, he, they told him about the death of their leader, the one they had hoped would become the Messiah and he says to them O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written ought not Christ to have suffered these things and enter into his glory and beginning at Moses and all the prophets that encompasses the whole of the Old Testament beginning at Moses and all the prophets he showed them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself the old testament is all about christ if you read it right and so that great brazen altar is a picture of the death of christ and then the next thing you came to was what was called the laver a sort of big big um, pond almost pool with taps all around it 
where the priests would wash themselves and their clothes after making the sacrifices. And that again, <coughs> as we shall see later on next week, uh, that again is a picture of Christ. But then they would come to the tabernacle itself. Now the word tabernacle simply means a tent. And this tent had two portions. The outer portion, which was called the holy place, and only priests were allowed in there. And in that portion of the tabernacle, they did their work. They, they trimmed the light lampstand that uh, is still used, the menorah as a symbol, national symbol for Israel. Uh, there was that, and that alone that gave light to the holy place. And then there was the table of showbread where every day fresh loaves were prepared uh, and baked and uh, offered before the Lord as, as, as an offering. And then they were taken away and given to the priests as food and, um, uh, and fresh bread was prepared. And then finally there was a, a small altar of incense which was not a sacrificial altar but an altar on which incense was offered to God. But then beyond that there was another curtain. And within that other curtain, beyond that other curtain, was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies there was just one piece of furniture. And that was the Ark of the Covenant. It was a, a box. If you took this pulpit and lay it on its front, it would be an open box with an open top. And it would be about the right size, about the same size as the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but the top, uh, well, the Ark of the Covenant was made of wood, but it was covered inside and outside, and none of the wood was visible, inside and outside with gold. And then on the open top, there was a single solid slab of gold forming a lid. And on that lid, one at each end, were two cherubim with their wings outstretched and meeting over the centre of the gold slab. That gold slab was called the mercy seat, and above the mercy seat, below the overarching wings of the cherubim, there was, when the tabernacle was in use, there was a visible presence of glory. It was called the Shekinah glory. Now, it wasn't God. It wasn't God but it was a manifestation of the presence of God with his people. And nobody was allowed into that holy of holies. No one uh, dare look upon the Shekinah glory, except once every year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest alone would enter and would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. Now all this is, is wonderfully symbolic and this is something we shall 
elaborate next uh, next week, God willing. Let's see, therefore, how the psalmist gets from his depression to his delight. We come to our second point. The Christian's resources. Well, we've already introduced them, haven't we? <clears throat> the, guide, the spiritual guide dogs. Send forth your truth and your light. Let them lead me. And this is the first thing we need to grasp. That <clears throat> in all our troubles, in all our difficulties, and of course when we're not in any particular difficulty, we possess resources which we often fail to use. And these resources <clears throat> are God's truth and God's light. Now, what is God's truth? <laughs> what is meant by that? Well, the Lord Jesus himself, uh, praying for his disciples in John chapter 17, makes it very clear. He prays to his Father for his disciples and says, Sanctify them by or through your truth. Your word is truth. So, when the Bible talks about God's truth, it can be used in a number of different contexts, but, but in a context like this, when we're seeing the psalmist plead with God to, to send forth, uh, to provide, uh, to give this truth, then it is pretty clear that he's talking about the word of God. Man says Deuteronomy chapter 8 man does not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God shall man live and again and again we find the word of God is presented to us as truth absolute truth and I, I want to just read a passage from Psalm 119 that <clears throat> underlines that uh, Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, of course, in the book of Psalms, is all about the Bible. It's all about the scriptures. It uses different words for, for scriptures. Uh, words, I'm picking at random, um, your word, he says, and the precepts, your law, and uh, your judgments, all these different words, are, are references to the scriptures, the written scriptures. In fact, it has been said that every verse in this very long psalm refers to the scriptures in some way or another. Not totally true, but almost every verse does. So, <clears throat> in Psalm 119, I'm just going to read a few verses from Psalm from, um, verse... 97. <clears throat> oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. You, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. Talking about the commandments, not the enemies. 
Your commandments are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep your precepts. I have restrained my feet from every evil way, that I may keep your word. I have not departed from your judgments, for you yourself have taught me how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's truth, the scriptures. And uh, there's no time for us to develop that passage, but it's obvious, isn't it, isn't it that, that the truth of God, the scriptures, have a transformative power. They have the power to change us. Uh, quoted earlier, I think, that uh, Paul writes to Timothy, uh, and, and he, he talks about the scriptures that are able to make you wise unto salvation. Now, that's where we start. But once we have been made wise to salvation, once the reality and the, the significance of Christ's death upon the cross and resurrection have been brought home to us, then from then on, the truth of God becomes, as the, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119, sweeter than the honeycomb, something sweet, something that refreshes us, something sweet to the taste something we love, something we need to know more about, something for which we hunger. And this is one of the great problems of Christians today. They are not hungry for the word of God as they ought to be. Well, we want to try to change that. One of the objects of the ministry here will be to give people a love for the word of God and a reason to love the word of God. And if you, if you go back to that passage in Psalm 119 from verse 97 onwards, you'll, you'll soon find the many different ways in which the psalmist in 119 found and discovered the transformative power of the Word of God. Well, there are so many other scriptures that testify to the fact that God's truth is God's word and God's word is God's truth. The account of the uh, road to Emmaus, which I mentioned earlier, is, is a picture of that. The whole of the Old Testament is, is full of Christ, is full of truth, and it's full of transformative truth. And, and that passage in Psalm 119 is, is <clears throat> a practical statement of some of the ways in which the Word of God has affected the life, has moulded the life, the thinking, the ambitions, the desires of the psalmist himself. And it can and should do the same for us. We live in a godless age. We are impacted continually by the thinking, by the standards by the assumptions of a godless world. How do we protect ourselves from that? 
by taking heed thereto, uh, says um, <coughs> Proverbs 3. Uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, we take heed uh, to ourselves according to the word of God. So then, there is the truth. It is there for us to use. And the challenge, of course, is this. Are we using it? Well, we'll do say more about that next week. Now, finally, what is the light? <clears throat> We have two guide dogs here, spiritual guide dogs, truth and light. They are what are going to bring us uh, to Mount Zion and to the altars of God and to God our exceeding joy. They're very important things then. Well, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the commentaries, you will know that opinions differ. But I have no hesitation in saying that the light referred to here is the illumination that the Holy Spirit throws upon the Word of God. And that is extremely important. And I'm going to, I'm almost finished, I'm going to read another passage. This time from the New Testament, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and we pick it up at verse 13. <clears throat> now Paul is referring here to the time when <clears throat> Moses went up into the mountain, Mount Sinai, and received the tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And uh, he, he made several trips and on one occasion he came down and his face was shining with the reflected glory of God. And um, <clears throat> the people said, well, we can't bear the sight. Put a veil over your face. We, we can't bear to look upon your face because it has only the reflected glory of God. But it was too much for them. And so Moses did put a veil over his face. Uh, and that is the reference that Paul is making here. And he talks about the way we read and understand the scriptures. Unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of the glory that was passing away, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in their reading of the Old Testament. But the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day when Moses is read, that is the Old Testament is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, so that we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord.
And then as you read on into chapter 4, he says in verse 3, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was talking about unbelieving Israel. But you know, we too can read the scriptures very often without that essential illumination by the Holy Spirit that will bring those scriptures from being not just a daily reading or something we hear in church, but bring them home to our heart, unveiling them to us by the Holy Spirit, the light here that will lead us to God, to God our exceeding joy, is the light of the Holy Spirit shed upon the Word of God, infusing our hearts, our eyes as it were, with the glory of Christ. So that John, the Apostle, in the opening chapter of his Gospel, can say, of Christ, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Do the scriptures do that for us? They should do. And we want them to. And that's why we're studying this psalm. Let's sing our closing hymn.